I want to invite everyone to open their Bibles to the book of Genesis. Um, we uh, preach uh, through books of the Bible, and we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis. And uh, today we are in chapter 33. Uh, and uh, the last uh, last week we were in chapter 32, and and Jacob, uh, with, who the uh, story of Genesis is now centering on, he's been forever changed. Okay, he left Laban. That episode in Jacob's life is over. And now he's getting ready to meet Esau, and as he's getting ready to meet Esau, he's he's afraid for his life, uh, and he we have this really strange episode where he, he wrestles with God, and. He left that, that meeting with God uh, not, with a limp and with blessing. And so his life uh, was changed in significant ways. He was no longer Jacob, but Israel. And it was through this that Jacob was now ready to meet his greatest enemy, his brother Esau, the one who, if you'll remember, was left. He fled Esau because of murderous threats. But he was changed, as we'll see, in ways that we might not expect. Now, if, if you're in this room, and, and if you've seen, or if you're brave, read uh, the book Les Miserables, uh, you should. Uh, and uh, the movie version from 1998 with Liam Neeson is really good. If you don't know who Liam Neeson is, he, uh, well, he, he is uh, really, he's a Jedi, he punches wolves, uh, he does all things, and he's also a character in Les Miserables. Uh, but also the more recent one from 2012 is also very good. It's all singing. I'm not a musical guy, and I still really like it. So they're both very good. But it follows a story. It mainly follows a guy named Jean Valjean. And uh, Jean Valjean was put into to a harsh prison for 19 years for petty crimes. He, I think he tried to steal some food, uh, and then like a couple of times he tried to escape. And so he's in this harsh prison for 19 years. And once he gets out of prison, he has nothing, right? And and uh, and if it's hard getting out of prison and getting a job now, much more in pre-revolutionary France, right? Everybody knows he's a criminal. He can't make a living, so he decides he needs to steal again. So he tries to steal from this priest. He gets caught, and he's going to pay for it with his life. But what happens is the priest uh, shows him mercy, and instead of reporting him, gives him more of his stuff. And so this act of mercy profoundly changes Jean Valjean uh, to where for the rest of his life is dedicated to showing mercy to others. I mean, it changes him profoundly. And it's a long story, right? And you should definitely go watch the movie, read the book. But um, one of the most profound parts is that through the whole story, uh, Jean Valjean is traced by, chased by an officer. He's hounded by an officer named Javert. I know it's all French, all right? Javert is dedicated to punishing Valjean to the fullest extent of the law. Well, it turns out at the end of the story, during the French Revolution, everything's getting turned on its head, and and uh, uh, Javert, because he's a, a French officer, is going to be executed, right? The people have risen up, they're going to execute him, and so uh, Jean Valjean volunteers to execute him. So he takes Javert in this alley, uh, and instead of pointing his gun at Javert and, and shooting him, he points it in the air, shoots it, and he fakes his execution and makes Javert run. He lets, instead of uh, doing to Javert what he could, he lets him go free. 
It's, it really is an incredible story in many ways. And it highlights the significant ways that grace changes us. Right? It highlights the way grace changes the way we meet especially our enemies. The world, the world would have us take vengeance on our enemies. The world would have us like perfect the, the perfect comeback, the perfect retaliation, but grace, grace would have us forgive our enemies. The world would have us uh, try to take advantage of our enemies, best our enemies. Grace would have us treat our enemies better than ourselves. And in this chapter, when Jacob meets his brother Esau, I want to show you three profound ways that grace changes us and changes the way that we approach reconciliation, animosity, and even our enemies. So I want to invite you to read together. It's not going to be on the screen. I apologize, but we'll just be reading uh, Genesis chapter 33, starting in verse 1. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front. Then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near, drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. And Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth, and built himself a house and, booth, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So at this point, at the very beginning of this chapter, right, Jacob has met God, God has blessed him, but that still, we still don't know and Jacob doesn't know if Esau's going to kill him or attack him. And it's in these first few verses that we see the, the, the first change in Jacob, that grace teaches us to die to ourselves. Now we have to look at this honestly, okay? Jacob sees Esau coming with 400 men, 
And even here, even after this like profound experience with God, Jacob still shows his favoritism, right? He, he divides up his servants, wives, and children. And then he's like, well, I like you least. So servants and children, you're going to go first. Uh, I like you a little more. So Leah and your children. And then he puts his favorites, uh, Rachel and Joseph, last. Unfortunately, this favoritism is never really um, cured in, in Jacob. He kind of struggles with this for the rest of his life. In fact, uh, this is what sets off the whole Joseph story. Uh, because Jacob sh- continues to show favoritism. However, even though we do see his favoritism and we just want to palm our faces, we do see a great change in Jacob here. It's subtle, but it's great. You see, in the last chapter, in, in chapter 32, there were two places that he put others in danger beside himself. Right? In verse 7, he divides uh, his flocks and his family into two camps, and he reasons, well, uh, at least it, if others die, I can still make it away with what I have. And then, in verses 22 and 23, <laughs> he sends his family right into the heart of enemy territory. He stays on the other side of the river where he wrestles with God, but he's like, hey, family, go ahead and cross the river. Let's see what happens. I mean, I, if you had read like ancient warfare, a river is one of the greatest defenses that you can have. And he just sends them right on over. So he really just showed a profound lack of concern for others. But here, after this meeting with God, even though he does show favoritism, he does this in verse 3. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. In other words, Jacob is putting himself in harm's way before others. He's not expending others first, he's expending himself first. I think we can commend that in Jacob. Uh, This, to me, is the difference between uh, uh, General Douglas MacArthur and General Oliver Smith in the Korean War. Okay, So uh, this may not have been true at all times during his career, but in the Korean War, MacArthur was he's seen mostly concerned with his own prestige and reputation. So, I mean, he achieved victory for the Korean people very early on in the war, but he wanted to keep pushing. And, and he pushed it too far. And he pushed it farther than it should have gone, and he ended up expending others mainly for his own self-glory. Oliver Smith, on the other hand, another general, was with, with his men on the ground. And, and throughout the whole war, he became famous among his men because he always put their well-being before his own. Grace teaches us to die to self. To consider our own lives as nothing in the service of others. This does mean putting yourself in danger before others, but especially in this context where reconciliation is happening because you see You cannot be reconciled to others, much less with an enemy, if you yourself have not died to yourself. Crucified your rights or what you think you deserve. This is what Jesus meant when he said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. I mean, this isn't necessarily about pacifism, but about accepting mistreatment. By dying to yourself for the glory of God. And grace, and only grace, 
can teach us to do that. It's a nice sounding concept until river meets the road. But this is really only one side of another important point. Grace teaches us to treat others better than ourselves. Something happens here that's actually really incredible, right? Esau is the one who runs and embraces and kisses Jacob, right? This is crazy. This is not something we, as the audience, are expecting. Uh, but because where we left off, Esau wants to murder his brother, and then, whoa, hey, he's coming with 400 men. We're not expecting Esau to be very happy about this. But he is. And I believe that this here is to show us what God's sovereignty can do. The change in Esau did not become, did not happen because of all of Jacob's gifts or all of Jacob's efforts. We are only led to assume that this came about because of God's work in him. Church, we don't have to make everything happen. We don't have to have everything under our control. We can trust that not only is God in control, but that He is actively working beyond what we control. Whether it's our kids, okay, and, and, and we know, Lord knows those are out of our control. Those as if they're monsters. Uh, uh, spouses, a boss, uh, a leader, or even an enemy, God can and does work in them without our help. We have to believe that. And remind ourselves of that. But this isn't even really what I want to focus on. Because beyond this, what this is really where the remarkable change in Jacob's life is seen. Jacob approaches Esau as a master. Right? He bows seven times at Esau's approach. He refers to himself constantly as Esau's servant. He, he gives Esau tribute as a servant would give tribute to his master for favor. And he consistently refers to Esau as my Lord or my master. What's happening is that Jacob is finally treating Esau like the older brother. Right? Instead of tricking him, undermining him, and taking from him, he's giving and submitting to him. Yes, yes, because of God's sovereign grace, Jacob is the one with the blessing. Because of God's sovereign grace, Jacob is the one uh, that, that um, gets the blessing and carries on the people of God. But like we've seen, that doesn't excuse Jacob from acting like he has. Instead, Jacob is realizing that all he is isn't because of his trickery. He didn't get the blessing because of his trickery. He didn't get the birthright because of his trickery. He got it all because of Wow, God's grace. Verse 11, please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. Not let me, let me bless you because of what I've earned, but because God has dealt with me by grace. 
And that, that changes the way that we approach others, especially our enemies. If, if we are who we are, if, if you today are who you are by God's grace alone, then we know fundamentally we're not any better than our worst enemies. When a politician calls you deplorable, you can say, I am. I am. I, I am worse than you, actually, if not for God's grace. Grace teaches us that we are far worse than we know. And, and the moment we start to think highly of ourselves shows us that we're not thinking of grace. It teaches us that we're far worse than we know, but more loved than we can comprehend. In fact, in fact, God's grace puts us under an obligation to others, right? If, if we have received so great a gift from God, even though we don't deserve it, who are we to keep it from others? Who, who do you think you are when you try to keep that from others? That's what I, I think is behind what Paul says in Romans 1. He's talking about the gospel and he says, I am obligated to both Jews and to Greeks. Grace, in other words, makes us servants. Grace makes us servants. It teaches us to treat others better than ourselves, regardless of whether they deserve us. If the Lord of all creation could show us mercy in this way, how could we not? And don't get me wrong, while dealing in, in radical grace and mercy and compassion is essential we are also to live unlike others as well. We are to look different. And this is why, thirdly, grace teaches us to separate ourselves. So Jacob and Esau have this beautiful reunion. right? They, they, we have no reason to doubt that they're both being genuine and sincere and that their love for one another is rekindled. But then we kind of have this weird part at the end. Esau's like, hey, let me go ahead of you. And they, they kind of agree, let's, like, we're going to go to Seir together. And then we're told without explanation that it's like Jacob goes on his way to this place called Sukkoth and then to, to Shechem. Like, all right, uh, we'll, meet, uh, we'll meet you at Mexican Villa for lunch. And then we end up going to, like, Raising Cane's instead. Like, suckers, you know. Um, we don't know why Jacob does this because Moses, the author, doesn't give us an explanation. And we can ponder, we can ask why, but one thing is obvious. Esau returns to his home outside of the land of promise, whereas Jacob's home is in the land of promise. A commentator, uh, Kenneth Matthews, said that the disparate geographical routes taken by the two parties metaphorically convey the different destinies of the brothers. Whatever we can say about Esau, Whatever we can say about God's working in him so that he reconciles with Jacob, he remains outside of the land of promise. And whatever we can say about Jacob, his home is ultimately found in the land of promise. And really, in the Old Testament, this is how the world was to know who the people of 
of God were. Not just who they were descended from, but where they were. The people of God live in Canaan and, and descended from Abraham. I mean, they, and they also, when you go, they look different from the rest of the world too. I mean, the Mosaic Law caused them to literally look different with their hair and their dress from the world around them. It kind of reminds me, um, we lived in Virginia for a time, and I don't know if you've ever crossed state lines into West Virginia, but you know, I used to, so I don't know if you've ever heard jokes about Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi, okay? And, I, and Mississippi's the brunt of a lot of jokes. We're the fattest state, we're the poorest state, we're the dumbest state. Maybe I'm one of those three things, all right? But anyway, um, West Virginia is also the brunt of a lot of jokes. So I used to think like, all right, I would admit I'm from Mississippi. We're in it together. We're, we're the brunt of jokes. But, I mean, you cross into West Virginia, you're like, okay, you guys are on your own. You guys have your own problems, all right? Okay, y'all can stay. And so crossing from Virginia to West Virginia, there's just, wow, like this difference, right? You can just see this difference. That's like how the land of Israel was to be. You cross in and, whoa, there's this difference. By the time Jesus comes, he turns all of this on, his head, on its head. It's not your physical appearance. It's not your physical, la- physical location or physical genealogy that makes you the people of God, but whether you are related to him by faith. It's the same concept. The people of God are to be different, but this time instead of outward appearance by what we wear, it's about inward recreation. You must be born again. Jesus tells to someone born from Abraham. You have to be born again. It's not good enough for you to follow the law to be born of Abraham. It's not good enough. You must be born of the greater Abraham. To be born in Israel, in the land of Israel, it's no longer enough. You must be born of the greater Israel. And while our interactions with the world must continue, they must be gracious and seasoned with salt, we must never forget that like with baptism today, we're set apart. We must remain separate from the world in holiness. In the world, but not of the world. In the world, but of Christ. Jude uh, cautions us in, in, in his letter. And, I mean, he says exactly this. He says, snatch others from the fire and save them. Right? Be out in the world. Save them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. So grace teaches us to separate ourselves. Not by location, not by dress, but by by holiness. You know, really this whole chapter is about reconciliation. Right? And how grace transforms reconciliation. In, 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 in sin, we too were once enemies. Right? Uh, and Paul described us in Titus 3 that in sin, we were hated by others and hating one another. We were just enemies of one another in our sin. But, but our enmity actually went a lot deeper than that. The Bible describes us most fundamentally as as enemies of God in sin. 
Colossians 1 tells us, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. We're told in James 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Because we are his enemies, Ephesians 2 tells us that we were by nature objects of his wrath. If you are not a believer in Christ this morning, that is what is most true of you. You might be many things. You might be a a son, a daughter, a father, a mother, a wife, a husband, whatever. But most fundamentally, you stand as an enemy of Almighty God because of your sin. But Christ. You can't do the reconciling because Christ did the reconciling for you. And in Christ, by virtue of faith in Christ, He becomes our reconciliation. And that's where grace is found. Grace is found in the Savior dying on the cross and absorbing the wrath for His enemies. This is where grace is found. Grace that changes and transforms. Grace not only to be saved, but grace to sustain you through your whole Christian life. Grace found in a dying Savior on a cross for you who once was His enemy. Let's respond to this Savior this morning. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your Word. That that in Your Word we see how grace transforms us. That, That true grace radically changes the way that we see the world. It changes the way that we approach others. But this grace isn't something in us. It's not something intrinsic to us. In fact, sin is intrinsic to us. Hating others is intrinsic to us. Lashing out. Fighting. Asserting ourselves. Dominating others. That's intrinsic to us in Jesus, we are in desperate need of your grace. Desperate need of your grace to put to death our old natures and to to give us new natures. New natures that are formed after your image. An image that is holy. An image that is merciful. An image that is gracious, that dies to self, dies for others. this grace is available to us not because of what we've done but because you came if you did not come there is no grace but because you did come there is all grace and I pray that we would receive that by faith this morning send your spirit that he may do his work in us we pray this in your name